All right, Romans chapter 10. I know it's been a long time. And, we, and I was so thinking that we were going to advance everything, and then, well, you know what, three weeks later, we're, uh, we're going to have to go back and kind of put this back together. So let's begin this morning. Go ahead and turn to Romans 10, have it ready to go. And I want you to write down the following quote. Are you ready? Here we go. Ignorance, more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. That may sound like a contradiction, but it's not. The more ignorant you are, for some weird reason, the more confident you feel, the more confident you think you are. You would think ignorance would lead to humility. Ignorance would lead to going, mm, you know, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't studied this enough. I haven't read about this enough. I haven't pursued any official study on this. I, I think I'm just going to be careful what I say. But for some weird reason, ignorance begets confidence, almost an arrogance, almost a pride at where knowledge actually well, knowledge actually should lead to, I think what knowledge actually leads to is more of a humble approach. The more knowledge you gain, I think it, the more you don't know. I remember I have talked about it before in Bible college that one of my professors would say this all the time. What's the goal of, of education? To show you how much you don't know. The, the, you know you're, you listen, when, whenever you pursue any form of education, I don't care if it's high school, I don't care if it's college, I don't care Bible college, seminary, if you walk out of a class feeling like you know more, you probably, that's not, you, you didn't really encounter education because it should never lead to an arrogance that you know more. It should lead to, wow, how much do I still have to learn? How much do I still not understand? I thought I knew, but now I don't. And if you think about it, the Christian life really follows this pattern. When you're a young Christian, it doesn't take very long that you become very confident and in many cases, very arrogant, like you've got it all figured out. Like you understand it. You, this is the way Christianity is and everyone else is wrong. It's so clear. It's so simple. It's so easy. But if you continue to pursue theological education, continue to pursue Bible study and continue to learn, at some point you realize, man, maybe I don't quite have all this together. Maybe, maybe my understanding was incorrect. And I think that's a very important concept, especially in Romans chapter 10. Because in Romans chapter 10, you're dealing in some ways with a group of people who have extreme confidence that they understand something. But in reality, it's ignorance. They have confidence, but it's based off their ignorance of something, not off actual knowledge. But they would look like the people with all the knowledge. And I'm specifically referring to Israel and the Jews. Because in some ways, you would think that the, what's the one thing you would think they would understand? The law. Agreed? You think if there's one thing that Israel would have understood, they would have been experts in the law. 
And they were very confident in their understanding of the law. They were very confident in their ability to memorize the law. They were very confident to use the law to condemn anyone and everyone that was anywhere near them. But what we're finding out in Romans 10 is that they were not actually knowledgeable about the law, were they? They were ignorant of their own law. They were ignorant. Now, when I say ignorant of it, they knew the content of it. But what were they ignorant about? The purpose of it. They knew the content of it. They didn't understand the purpose of it which led them to a complete misunderstanding of everything related to salvation. So I think this is a very important concept. So let me say it again. Ignorance does what? Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. So you have to ask yourself, a lot of the things theologically and biblically that you may feel so confident about, is it based off knowledge Or is it based off ignorance? Now, your first reaction is always to say what? It's knowledge! But could it be maybe a lack thereof? I think it's a very important concept and something to consider. And we're going to consider that concept in light of Romans chapter 10. So everybody ready to go back through Romans 10 and see if we can remember something? The goal this morning, I'll just go ahead and give you the goal. The goal this morning is we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, basically verses 5 to 13, and we're going to look at every reference to the Old Testament. We've already worked on about two or three of these, but we're going to find every reference back to the Old Testament, right? And then try to get a correct understanding of the law because they're ignorant of it. All right, everybody ready? Let's start in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, and we'll 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 work our way through this. All right, here we go. Start in verse 1. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel uh, that they might be saved. Once again, what is Paul demonstrating in verse 1? He's done this uh, before already. His heart's desire, his, his love and concern for his fellow countrymen, for Israel. He is concerned that because he wants them to be what? Saved. Verse 2. For I bear them record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Remember what did I just say about ignorance? Frequently it begets what? Confidence. Israel has a great confidence. They have a great zeal. But Paul tells them right straight, in a sense, to their face, you have a zeal, but what do you not have? You don't have knowledge. Now, let's just stop right here and get very practical. In your Christian life, you need both. Some people have knowledge, but they have no zeal. Some people have zeal and no knowledge. Right? I've met lots of Christians. Sadly, sometimes it's in the charismatic world where they have lots of zeal. Man, they talk about God. They talk about prayer. They talk about Jesus. I mean, mean, they they have a zeal and and it's almost an excitement. You're almost like, wow, I wish I had that zeal. But the second they talk, you're just like, stop talking. Just stop talking, please. Would you never speak again? Would you delete your social media? Would you just go far away? Because I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. 
I know you claim to be a Christian, but we're, it's a different religion you're talking. I don't know what it is, but you feel bad because they have so much zeal. And then you have some people who have all kinds of knowledge, but they seem to care less about anything other than just telling people how much they know. Other than that, they don't seem to have any passion for the Word of God, no zeal, no excitement. But man, they can tell you when you get the verse wrong. Right? They can, they can tell you that. And it's like, we, you got to have both. But it's, do you find it hard to have both? For some weird reason... I hate to say it, sometimes knowledge kills zeal. And sometimes zeal leads to, uh, or ignorance leads to zeal. Maybe it's because ignorance leads to what? Confidence. Isn't it kind of a, 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 isn't it kind of a strange way that this works? Right, but he knows that they're ignorant. Verse 3, for they being there we go. Okay. He said, I'm not making these up. up. This is coming. I'm, I'm, these concepts are coming right here from the text, right? They have knowledge, but they are ignorant. Now, who's ignorant? It's Israel. I want you to make sure you understand that. It's Israel. It's those who have the Old Testament. It's those who have the Old Testament law. But what are they ignorant about specifically? For they being ignorant of, and I want to make sure you write down those two words, God's righteousness. They are ignorant of God's righteousness. How, doesn't that seem odd? How could Israel be ignorant of God's righteousness? What do they have? They have the law, right? They have all of those rules. They have the Ten Commandments. They have, uh, they have everything. They have one rule after another rule after another rule. How could they be ignorant of God's righteousness? How is that even possible? They should be experts in God's righteousness. But this immediately causes us to pause. Well, wait a minute. How could they be ignorant of God's righteousness? And this begins to kind of give us a hint of something. Is it possible, listen to me, that there's a difference between God's righteousness and law-keeping. That's, that's an important question, right? That's a very important question. Because how do we typically perceive righteousness? Law-keeping. Let's just be honest. We perceive righteousness by rule keeping, right? What are the rules? Here's the rules. If you're a Christian, you do this, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this. Bump, da Guess what? I'm righteous. But is that righteousness? Well, Romans 10 is going to have to be the one to answer it, not me, correct? So let's go through this. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. Does, does the verse give us any clue? For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. There's two systems of righteousness that every one of us is familiar with. There is the righteousness of God and there's the righteousness of law. 
And most of your Christian life, you learn the importance of the righteousness of law-keeping. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. How do you know you're a Christian? By what you do. What proves you're saved? What you do. So really, what, how do you know you're a Christian? By the righteousness which you demonstrate by the rules you keep. This is, this is a part of the evangelical world. Very, very much so, no matter what we try to claim. It's the case Christianity has been preached more as a moral system and how to have good behavior than it is anything else. And guess what? Israel was guilty of the exact same thing. God's righteousness or our own righteousness. Now, that gets us verses 10 through 3. We've looked at this. We've talked about it. I'm not going to review everything else. Now, that brings us to verse 4. What shocking thing does he say in verse 4? What's the shocking revelation in verse 4? Christ is the end of the law. Wait, what just happened? Christ is the end of the law, and does it say anything else? For righteousness. All right. Remember, there's two systems, right? What are the two systems? God's righteousness, law righteousness. When it comes to the law, Christ becomes the end of the law for what purpose? For righteousness. In other words, in Christ... What is no longer required to establish righteousness? The law is no longer the source of righteousness. Christ becomes the source of righteousness. So in other words, for every human being, you're looking for either... Now, you you can have three approaches, right? One approach is, I don't care about anybody's righteousness. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm going to be good enough to go. Right Now, that, that I, I wish, in some ways, don't you wish it would work out that way? That you could just do whatever you want and you'd be good to go? I wish that would, that would be so great. That'd be awesome, right? The only thing is, if I die and I'm wrong, that's a bad way to go. Right? Because if I go with, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And, I, and, and, and it great, when you establish your own righteousness, you're always righteous. Right? You're always right. Everyone else is always wrong. Right? I, sometimes I love when kids raised in a Christian home decide they're done with Christianity. Then they just go establish their own righteousness and then everyone else is a hypocrite. Everyone else is a sinner except them. They're, they're the righteous one and everyone else is the... And I'm like, well, it must be great. If I made up my own rules, I could be righteous too. And so sometimes you want to look at them and go, you realize I'm not a Christian because I think I keep the law. I'm a Christian because I know I don't keep the law. And you accuse me of being a hypocrite. No, we acknowledge that we're a hypocrite. But it would be easy for me not to be a hypocrite if I could just establish my own rules. Right? Hey, I'm always righteous. Why? Because it's my rules. And who who is unrighteous? Everyone else. So if you don't think their way, say their words, do things their way. But you can go with that approach, establish your own righteousness. You'll feel always feel good about yourself, and you can always condemn everyone else, right? Even though they claim Christianity is the one that's always condemned. Isn't it weird how Christianity supposedly is the one that condemns everyone else, but then they're always condemning everyone else? Isn't it weird how everyone condemns everyone? Okay, that's just that's in, in human nature. But that this system works out great, right? Until you die. Now, if you die. 
and all of a sudden you're facing God, what is your righteousness going to accomplish? It's going to burn up in 2.3 seconds, right? It's not even that long. It's just going to go, Foof, and you're going to be left with, okay, I'm in trouble. And there's no do-over. There's no time out. You're like, whoa, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. No, it's going to be like, nope. I'm God, I'm holy, I, de- I demand righteous. And you're going to be like, well, I, I, I posted things on Twitter about how bad the world is. And, 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 I, and, I, and I told everyone else how wrong they were. And I told everyone else how bad they were. I mean, come on, do I get any credit for posting things on Twitter about my... It's not, it's not going to work. God's not going to be impressed with your righteous demands on Twitter. And, and, and it's always easy to be righteous on Twitter versus actually doing something. Right? Okay. Everyone is bad. Okay. Well, how about you get off Twitter and go do something? All right. It's, but that's a whole different story. Okay. But that, that, that just all burns up. That, that's not very good. Right? What's the second approach? A law righteousness. So you do, you do acknowledge there's a God. You do acknowledge that God has given his word. You believe his word. You believe it's holy. You believe it's right. You believe that those are the rules. And so you are going to stand before God in your ability to keep all of the rules. That sounds really good. Until what? God's going to be like, you really think you kept the law? Give me a break. You're a joke. Okay, you failed in every way possible. No, I didn't. No, I, again, and if you believe that you can do so, just take the Sermon on the Mount and just live the Sermon on the Mount. You don't live the Sermon on the Mount. No one lives the Sermon on the Mount. No one has ever lived the Sermon on the Mount. So when people preach, which is taught in many churches, how do you know you're saved? You keeping the Sermon on the Mount proves you're saved. No one's saved. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the pure in heart. Are you pure in heart? No, you're not. You fell right there. You're in the Beatitudes and you've already failed. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Be ye perfect as as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Has anybody here reached perfection? Does anybody love their neighbor the way they're supposed to? Love their enemy? Love God? I can go on and on and on through the Sermon on the Mount. You know what you do? You fall short. You've, I, I, I did an entire podcast series where I was reviewing sermons for my friend in Nebraska from their church. And I'm like, what in the world is this? Because he keeps saying, how do you know you're saved? This, you only know you're saved if you keep the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, well, then everyone in that church, either we all need to move to Nebraska because they're better than us, or they're all liars. So you can, you can grab onto, I'm going to keep the law and keep the rules and I'm going to prove I'm saved. All you're going to prove is that you're not saved. We, we, we've looked at the tests that lordship salvation gives. What, and, and anyone honest with those tests, what would you conclude? That you're not saved. And you say, well, it's not about doing it correctly. Why not? When did God's law become graded on a curve? So you either have your righteousness or you have law righteousness. What happens in both cases? You're going to stand before God and it's going to be, you're going to be told what? Depart from me. I never knew you. You, you workers of iniquity. You're done. You're finished. So there's a third approach. What's the third approach? 
Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness. And Christ becomes the end of the law because guess what? Now when I stand in Christ, what will I hear from God? Well done, good and faithful servant. Because who is the good and faithful servant? Christ. Who did everything? Who kept the Sermon on the Mount? Not only did he preach it, he kept it. Now in Christ, guess what? I will be told, well done, good and faithful servant, because what kind of righteousness now do I possess? A perfect righteousness, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, an imputed righteousness. So I'm declared to be perfect and holy, even though I am not. Therefore, Christ becomes the end of the law for establishing righteousness. Now, let's go through this section, all right? So, every, for verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. How, when does Christ become the end of the law for you? When you believe. When does Christ become the end of the law? By faith. By faith. By faith. I cannot stress that enough. It is by faith. Now, starting in, from verse 5 down to 13, Paul's going to make some references, or, or going to allude to and make references to Old Testament passages of Scripture. Why is he going to go to the Old Testament? Because who is he dealing with? The Jews. What do the Jews pride themselves of? Knowing the Old Testament. So he's going to use the Old Testament to prove that their confidence is based off an ignorance. It's not based off knowledge. So we start in verse 5. For Moses, immediately going to the Old Testament, describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live in them. Now, I'm going to read from a commentary here before we get to this passage because I think it's important, all right? I think it's very important. Paul, in a sense, is going to quote from the Old Testament to prove to his readers that they did not even understand their own law. And where does he start his quote from? Now, we have, we've covered this one, so everyone should know. What, where, where does he, what is he quoting in Romans 10, 5? Leviticus 18. So everybody go to Leviticus. Okay, very good. I was getting very worried that everybody had forgotten, all right? Leviticus all right, he goes to the book of Leviticus, everyone's favorite book. That's my favorite book, yes. I love Leviticus, okay? Leviticus chapter 18. And what verse does he quote from? Verse 5, all right? Okay, here we go. We'll, um, we'll go to verse 1 just for context, all right? Leviticus 18.1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying... So God is speaking to Moses, yes? And then Moses is going to speak to the people. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein you dwelt, shall you not, shall you not do? And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whether I bring you, shall you not do? Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. Bunch of rules, right? What are they not to do anymore? Follow the ways of Egypt or Canaan. Now, anyone know their Bible? Do they, uh, do they follow this? No. Do they fall short of it? Yes. 
Guess what? And if you lived then, you would have as well. Oh, guess what? Let's just change the word Egypt and Canaan. Just focus on America or just the way of the culture or the way of the world. Do you not fall in line with it more and more than you probably hope? You may try to claim that you don't, but you do in some way, shape, or form. It may not be, look, just always remember when we think of the world system, there is the world system that you may, uh, that we have, uh, sadly in 2022 in America, everything is divided this way, left and right or liberal and conservative. But guess what? You can fall into the way of the world on the conservative side or on the liberal side, but both sides are op- opposed to the way of God because God is beyond liberal and conservative, left and right. It's a completely different mindset. You may find things on the conservative side, you think, well, I think that's close to biblical Christianity, but it's still different than biblical Christianity, different motivation, different purpose, different everything. Does that make sense? So we fall short. So what does he say in verse 4? You shall do my judgments. Do they do his judgments? No. Keep my ordinances. Do they keep their ordinances? No. Walk therein. Do they do that? I am the Lord your God, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Simply put, what he's saying? Keep my law and you live. Wow. That's bad news. Everybody understand that's bad news? Do you understand there's nothing good in that? Keep God's law and you'll live. That's bad news. You know what you should just say? Well, then just go ahead and kill me. Because it's over. It's done. You say, no, 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 no. They can do it. No, they can't. And neither can you. Go back to Romans. Romans 10.5, For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. What kind of, what kind of righteousness is Moses describing in Leviticus? Law righteousness. And look what he says. That the man which doeth those things shall live by them. If you want to live, keep the law. Now, just go to Galatians chapter 3 verse uh, quickly. Galatians 3.10. Galatians 3.10. Because this really sums it up really well right here. Galatians 3.10. Everybody there? Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. What does law righteousness bring? A curse. Anyone who hopes to establish righteousness by law keeping, you are cursed. You can't keep it. Do you understand how that, that's what makes Christianity so bizarre and so weird in so many ways? And I wish that we would do a better job letting the world understand that. Because what young people will say this quickly all Christians are hypocrites. Now, they never see their own hypocrisy, but that's okay. But you know what the truth is? 
We are hypocrites. You know why? We can't keep the moral system that we preach. The world doesn't understand that, do they? We do a bad job explaining that, right? We walk around telling everyone, no, this is what the Word of God says. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And then they look at you and go, you don't do that either. And we don't. Christianity gives us a moral system that we cannot keep. That is, that's mind-blowing to me, right? Because you would think, well, and, and, and one of, this is one of the things that seems to me to prove the Bible clearly wasn't written by man, because what would be the first, if you were to write out a, a system of rules, what would be the first criteria you would set down in writing out your list of rules? That I can keep them, Right? Okay, you don't make a rule, you don't go, hey, hey, all right, hey, this afternoon, we're gonna, I'm going to create a game that we're going to play, and it's going to be a game that no one can do. You would be like, that. No, no one creates a game that you can't play, right? That It's impossible. But so it would be weird for human beings to write a law in the Word of God that we can't keep. You'd be like, hey, let's, let's change that. I mean, don't, how many agree that we got to get rid of this law? Okay, love God with all your heart. Who wants to get rid of that one? Love your neighbor as yourself? <laughs> Give me a break. Wait, love my enemy? Turn the other cheek? Bless them who would persecute me and use me? If someone asks me to go a mile, go too. If they sue me, give them more? <laughs> this, is, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Right? Agreed? I'd be like, who came up with, can we change these rules? Now, for some weird reason, in our ignorance, we are like, we can do it! Not only can we do it, we're going to tell the world that they better do it! Well, if we can't do it, why are we worried about telling the world that they should do it? None of us can do it! And so, as a result, what is the reality Everyone is under a curse. That's a bad place to be. We're all under a curse. So what what should be the obvious answer? Or what should be the obvious question? How do I get out of the curse? Does anybody want to remain cursed? I don't want to be cursed. Well, Paul's already kind of given us where, where the possible answer is, but we'll, we'll continue on, all right? So that's Romans, that's uh, back in Galatians. Go back to Romans 10. Now look at verse 6. So he just describes the righteousness which comes by the law in verse 5. And what's the result of that righteousness? A curse. Now what does he do in verse 6? But the righteousness which is of faith. Now he's going to turn to a righteousness that comes by faith. This is a different righteousness. This is not a righteousness based on what we do. And so now he's going to quote again. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above. Now, wait, what's going on here? What's he quoting here? He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now he's going to play some, he's going to play some games here with the way he quotes it. 
But let's try to establish what's being said in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let's go to Deuteronomy 30. Let's try to let's try to see if we can get this. We've got to finish this. So, if this becomes the Sunday morning to the Sunday evening service, that's okay. Okay. Well, whatever we got to do, we have to finish this. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 30, start in verse 11. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this commandment, which I command thee this day, is not hidden from thee, neither is far off. So start, stop right here. In the context, what is Moses telling the people of Israel? That the commands, the law that I'm giving you is what? It's not far off. Not, it's not something hidden. It's going to be really close to them. In fact, to, to show you this, verse 12, 12, is it, it is not where? In heaven, that thou shouldest say, uh, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? Hey, you can't say, I just don't know where the law is. Can someone go up to heaven and bring it back? He's like, no, no, you don't have to do that. Why? Because God brought it from heaven to them. Right? Verse 13, Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? In other words, you don't have to go, Hey, we made it to the ocean and I don't know where the... Can someone get in a boat and go get it? In other words, they can't say someone... No one needs to go to heaven to get it. No one needs to cross an ocean to get it. What does it say in the next verse? But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thine heart that thou mayest do it. How close is God's law? Right there. It's in their mouth. It's in them. It's given to them. Now, what are they going to discover? That they never are going to do it and they're going to fall short, therefore they're under a curse. But what does Paul do with Deuteronomy 30? Go back to Romans 10. In a sense, he doesn't apply this to the law, does he? What does he apply it to? Verse 6, but the righteousness which is of faith. He applies it to the righteousness that comes by what? Of faith. And what does he say? Speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, hey, this righteousness that you need... You can't say it's in heaven. Who's going to go get it? No, it came where? Just as the law was brought to them, the righteousness of faith was brought to them. Does anyone have to go to heaven to get Christ? No, Christ came here to do what? To be an end of the law for righteousness. He came to be the righteousness which we need. Verse six or Verse 7. Who shall descend into the deep that is to bring up Christ again from the dead? Does anyone have to go to the grave to find Christ? No. Verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, what is he saying? You don't have to go find it. The word, the the righteousness of faith has been brought where? To you. It's been preached to you. 
And that, that righteousness of faith comes by Jesus Christ. He has come to us. He is our righteousness. That is the righteousness we need. You don't have to go pursue it. It's been given to you. By what? Faith. Right? Everybody see all of that? Right? Now, just so that they understand. Now, please note. The, uh, please, at the end of verse 8, note that this is the word of faith which we preach. The word of faith which we preach. Everybody see that in verse 8? Now, immediately, what is he establishing? You have law righteousness, which is accomplished. How do you accomplish law righteousness? By keeping the law, which means no one's ever going to keep the law, so everyone's going to be cursed. How does the righteousness of faith come about? By faith. By faith. And then what does he say in the very next verse? That if thou should confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shall be saved. Now, immediately when we hear that verse, what, what's the very first thing we, we almost have a tendency to do first? We almost have a tendency to try to offer some kind of a, of, of a criteria or a protection. No, 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 no. It's not just, you can't just simply just believe. I mean, you believe, but something has to happen. Something has to change. We immediately have to try to protect it, right? Does Paul offer a protection? No. What does he want to understand? How are you saved? By faith. By believing you're saved. Because what happens the minute you believe? You're given the righteousness which comes by faith. And how good is that righteousness? It's perfect. It's perfect. Now, here's, we have a problem with this. Let's, come on, let's be honest. Do we not have a problem with this? Right? If I was to grab two of the teenagers, bring them up here, right? And you say, here's teenager one, and they do A, B, C, D. They do all of these righteous things, man. They obey their parents. They, they're, they're nice to their siblings. They obey. They honor. They don't lie. They don't cheat. They do their school they, schoolwork. They don't sneak out at two in the morning. They, they, I, mean, they do, I mean, they do everything right. And you'd be like, whoa, that's the righteous kid. That's the righteous kid. And then the other one, you're like, man, this other one, man, they're not always that respectful. They do this wrong. They do this wrong, this wrong. But this one believes and confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. You know immediately what we would say. Probably not truly saved. We'd immediately call their, fa- their salvation into question because their action doesn't match, quote unquote, their profession. And we would give the other one, basically treat them as they're the believer, even though they may not even really be a believer. They just happen to be morally righteous. We always have to explain it away, because that makes us nervous. Does that not make us nervous? Paul, what did Paul just say? Forget the old, the law. Focus on, and read the verse again. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And immediately we're like, well, but if you really believe, then you'll do this, 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 and this. Wait, all right, wait a minute. So David didn't believe? Was Solomon a believer? 
Solomon would not be considered a believer in any church in the United States of America in 2022. Tell me, tell me he would. Well, maybe, maybe there's some church, okay. I'm saying any biblically conservative church. He would come walking in and you'd be like, hey, who are you? Oh, my name is Solomon. Who's this? Oh, this is wife number one. And who's this? Wife number two and wife number three and wife number four and wife number five and wife number six and wife number seven. And you'd be like, I think we need a bigger church. This is a great family. I'm, I would be down with it. I'd be like, come on in, right? We just grew by a thousand, right? Okay. Who are the rest of these women? Well, I mean, they're not my wives, but I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, you know, we'd be like, get out. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The nursery would be gigantic, right? Okay. But I mean, come on. We, we, we laugh, but let's be honest. We, they would, we would be like, No, they're not a believer. Oh, but but we tell our kids that you know a proverb a day keeps the devil away. Yeah, written by a man who obviously didn't keep the devil away. Correct? Oh come on, let's be honest. We're like, memorize the proverbs, children. Just don't read about the guy who wrote them. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Right? David, I mean, we'd be, I mean, come on. Ain't it weird how we come up with the rules going, no, 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 no. That person can't be saved. Who are you to say that? Because you're judging their faith, their righteousness based off what? What's your criteria? Law. And guess what? You cannot judge. You can't judge, you cannot judge Faith righteousness by law righteousness. We apply the wrong standard. They say, well, the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away, all things are become new. And you're absolutely right. That's 100% true. Not in a practical way. And how do I know it's not true in a practical way? Because what does everyone continue to possess after salvation? A depraved nature. So you can't say all things have become new if the depraved nature is still present, right? Because obviously the old is not gone. So how do I understand that verse? And my position, guess what, is 100% true. I'm a new creature. Old is gone because I stand before God perfectly righteous. And that's the weird dichotomy within Christianity. We are declared perfectly righteous, even though everyone looking at us going, you're a joke! And you're like, and so are you! We, we, we've so convoluted this. Now you can do the John Piper you can do the John Piper uh, way of trying to get around this, which is really messed up. He basically does the what's called the second justification. Where ju- the first justification is by faith. The second justification is based on the righteousness you demonstrate in your life. That's basically Roman Catholicism. Now, I understand. You, you do understand why people have come up with these ways of trying to get around this. Because it's scary, Right? Because what is the last thing we don't want? We don't want to think that someone could simply believe and then get to heaven who don't do enough good things. I understand that. But it, it's, it's not, 
Guess whose job is it is to fix that? Not my job. It's God who decides to save people by faith. But I'm telling you, you can take all the tests and say, no, 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 I'd just take, quote-unquote, if you read 1 John as the test book, it is a test book against Gnosticism, but if you read it in an in incorrect way, even if you take 1 John, what does everyone do with 1 John? Well, it says you'll do this, but I mean, nobody's going to do it perfectly. So you grade it on a curve. Does 1 John read like it's re- to be tested as a curve? No, you will do this, and if you don't, you are not saved. Well, then no one was saved because everyone fails 1 John. Other than it making it a test against Gnosticism, then it can make some kind of a sense, right? Because Gnosticism throws out all of those requirements. Okay, so we, we, we can make sense there. But... That's the problem. Everybody wants to take the test, but nobody wants to grade the test in any right way. I get so tired of people saying, no, 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 you, if you're saved, you will do this, this, and this. And then you just wait for it, but not perfectly. Well, then stop telling me that's your test. It's not a test if you can say, well, you you score 10%, you're still good to go. Then that's a useless test, right? All right, so let's go back to Romans 10. We got, we, got to, we got to make sure we finish this, all right? If you, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Please note, for with the heart man does what? Unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. By believing, you obtain righteousness. An imputed righteousness. That goes against everything in your system, does it not? Your system demands not only belief, but action. And if not the right action, then you call into question the belief. But again, let me state it again. Can you judge an imputed righteousness based off law-keeping. I want everyone to give me the right answer. Can you judge an imputed righteousness based off law-keeping? Why not? Because it's imputed. It means it has nothing to do with you, right? How, how can I judge Bobby having imputed righteousness? Do I look to what Bobby does? I look to what Christ did. And guess what? Everything Christ did was perfect. So when I look to Bobby, I don't look to what Bobby's doing. You know, well, Bobby was doing this Friday night. Well, he probably was. But guess what? If he believes in Christ, guess what I'm supposed to see? Christ, not Bobby. Now, does that mean we excuse the sin? No. Does that mean we... No, I'm not saying we excuse it. I'm saying that that's... I can't judge Bobby based off Bobby's actions because Bobby is covered in the imputed righteousness if he has believed. He said, well, then I'll call into question the validity of the belief. Based off what? If Solomon believed, who are, then tell me who you're going to condemn. I mean, it's that simple. If you can't condemn Solomon, who can you condemn? Because I, d- I doubt you know anyone who is messed up as Solomon was. So then what do you play the game? Well, that was the Old Testament. That, that's different than now. According to whom? Well, Paul, the only difference is we don't have Paul's, 
We don't know what he did. See, that's, the, that's what makes me so mad. I wish Paul would have given us how bad he was because he says, hey, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do. He talks about he's the chief of sinners, but we always pretend like, you know, he probably just didn't read his Bible one day. We, we minimize whatever that sin could be, correct? But if, we, if it was written out, we'd be like, oh, Paul, we probably would throw Paul out of the, out of the Bible and say he wasn't even saved. But the point is, why, we don't have to even to look to Paul because we have these other people who are considered heroes of the faith. How can Samson be considered a hero of the faith? You know how he can be considered a hero of the faith? Because it's by faith, okay? It's not by his actions. It's amazing how we will condemn other people, but we give these people in the Bible a pass. But wait, we we gotta we gotta finish this, all right? We gotta hurry, we gotta hurry, we gotta hurry. At some point, Paul quotes another verse, does he not? All right, for with uh, uh, he believed unto righteousness, for the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Everybody see that? Okay. Um, what what verse is he referencing in eleven? Isaiah 28. Let's look at it really quick. Go to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, 16. We got to hurry, we got to hurry, we got to hurry. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, to make a, to a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make... Haste is what the phrase there, shall not make haste. How does Paul quote it? Shall not be ashamed. How come those who believe will not be ashamed? Now, let me make, listen, listen, this is very important. Everybody listening? In my life, as a believer, I've got countless things that I am ashamed of. And if you think that you don't, all we probably need to do is probably just start digging into your past and digging into your life and figuring out what you're doing when no one else is around. And probably you don't want what would be shown on the screen any more than I do, right? Everyone in this room, do we not have plenty to be ashamed of? I'm talking as a believer. Yes? So then how can I not be ashamed? Because in Christ, guess what happens to all those things I'm ashamed of? They're covered by the imputed righteousness of Christ. So when I stand before God, it's not look at all these things you did wrong, it's look at all the things Christ did right. That's good news. Now, we've got to continue on. So we're not going to be ashamed. Right? What's the next verse? For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. In other words, guess what? This righteousness is available to whom? Jew and Gentile, by what? Faith. And then, verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a quote from where? That's a quote from Joel 2.32. It's a quote from Joel 2.32. Right? And what, is that, and what does that last part say again? Just read. You don't have to go to Joel. Just what does it say there in Romans 10? That last verse that we just looked at. 
Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls, not, not based off what they do, but based off their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's do this. You ready? If you have a piece of paper, just draw down a line right down the middle. On one side, put law righteousness. On the other side, put faith righteousness. And I just want to draw a distinction between the two. All right? Law righteousness, faith righteousness. I just want you to see the difference, and we'll end with this. All right, you ready? Law righteousness. You ready for kind of the, the, uh, the key aspects of law righteousness? Law righteousness, number one, is based on works. Law righteousness is based on what you do and don't do. Number two, it's based, not only is it based on works, it's about self-righteousness. Why is it based on self-righteousness? Because it's based off what you do, on your actions. So law righteousness is based on works, it's based on self-righteousness. Guess what? It cannot save. Law righteousness cannot save anyone. Why can it not save? Because the righteousness one can produce in their own life is never sufficient to satisfy a holy God. Because what does God demand? A righteousness that goes beyond just mere, the mere external action, but he wants the internal reality in the heart. Please note, you can have, this is very important. You can have two, you can have two teenagers, right? One teenager externally always looks the righteous, the obedient one, and looks so godly. The other one externally may talk back and be more rebellious. But you know what sometimes you find out? Guess who actually is the most rebellious? The obedient one. Because inside, they're just filled with absolute, they're bitter, they're angry, they're upset, they hate you, even though externally they don't show it. But inside, they're, and the other one, they may, sometimes you get on your nerves because they may talk back, but you come to find out that they actually respect you far more and more appreciative and more loving than you could have ever imagined, but you viewed it based off an external action. External action does not always reflect what's going on inside, does it? Some of you don't like that because you were like, well, I was the obedient kid, back off! Okay, yeah, maybe externally you were, but maybe inside, not so much, okay? All right, you're saying, but uh, come on, you're making me look bad, all right? It cannot save. Uh, Law righteousness is based on your obedience to the Lord. It tells you obey, 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 obey. And guess what almost always happens with law righteousness? It ends with pride. Okay, it leads to pride. Because you could, you, well, first you have to convince yourself you're more obedient than you actually are. And you guess what you tend to do? Start looking down on everyone else, condemning everyone else. Law righteousness leads to spiritual arrogance and pride. And you condemn everyone and you think you're better than everyone else and you think you're the saved one and everyone else is the unsaved one because you're supposedly good enough. 
because you convince yourself you're good enough when anyone who knows you knows you're, you're not good enough or you're pointing the finger at everyone else. So the next time someone starts arguing, going, hey, no, 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 Christians will be different. You say, instead of worrying about everyone else, how about you start worrying about yourself and be quiet? They'll get very offended when you say that. Because typically, while they're sitting there bad-mouthing everyone else and telling everyone else that they can't be saved, nobody knows what's going on in their own life in private. And they don't want anyone to know what's in life in private because if they were exposed for five seconds, they would be embarrassed. Everyone talks a big game when when their life is not being exposed. All right, faith righteousness. We'll go through these quickly. Faith righteousness is based on faith alone. It's based on God's righteousness. So faith righteousness is faith alone. It's based on God's righteousness. It brings salvation. And instead of obeying the Lord, it calls for calling on the Lord. Faith righteousness is when you're sinking in the water saying, Lord, save me like Peter did. It's like, you don't have, you got nothing else to offer. You're just like, save me, I'm sinking because you've got nothing else. All right, so faith righteousness, let's go through them quickly. It's based off what? Faith alone, God's righteousness, it brings salvation. It's about calling on the Lord versus obeying the Lord. And guess what this one leads to? Not to pride, it leads to humility and the glorification of God. Because you don't get any glorification in faith righteousness. You know why? Because you've got nothing to offer. You, got, you, have, you have nothing to offer. Now I want you to just look at those two systems. So what are the three systems? Your own righteousness. Okay, that's great until you die. Right? Law righteousness, you just see what that leads to. Ultimately it leads to pride. It leads to damnation. It leads to a curse. That's all it leads to. Faith righteousness, that's the third one. And what does it lead to? should break you, humble you, and God will be the one who will be glorified. Because God is the one who does the saving. You have literally nothing to contribute to it. Nothing. Nothing to contribute. Because if I try to contribute anything, I'm gonna, it's just going to mess everything up. Anything, I, anything I'm saying, God, look what I have. It, it's, it's, well, you're condemned. I can't offer anything. To, God, I don't offer anything. Why do you not offer anything? Because anything I offer is corrupted. So what are you trusting in? What you have provided. Right? You can either run around in fig leaves or you can run around in the skin provided by the sacrifice of God which is his son, which is the perfect righteousness of Christ. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. The differences in these two systems are so important. Forgive us when we slip into a law-righteous mindset. We, I have done it. Everyone in this church has done it. We've, we do it all the time. Forgive us and help us become more focused and committed to a faith righteousness. And we are thankful that our salvation is not based on what we do, but what your son accomplished. And we ask this in his name. And God's people said...